there's a lot you can say about Arizona. From our last episode, you might remember the line that Arizona is just like hell. All it lacks is water and good society. Or from episode 27, when General William Tecumseh Sherman quipped, We had one war with Mexico to take Arizona. We should have another to make her take it back. But there are other quotes, too, that explain why people kept coming back to the dry southwest, especially in the 1860s. Men said such things as Lynx Creek or Bust, Rich Hill or Bust, Tombstone or Bust, or If you stumble on a rock, don't cuss it, cash it, or If you wash your face in the Hacienda River, you can pan four ounces of gold dust from your whiskers. No less a figure than Mark Twain once remarked about Arizona that wherever there was a rumor and a hole in the ground, someone had built a town around it. Because, you see, there were fortunes to be made out in the hellish deserts and wilderness. And the eager prospector usually could find water and usually didn't care for good society. No, for him, only the promise of rich gold strikes mattered. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 44, The Hasa Yompers. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we spent the whole of 1862 and 1863 following the political machinations behind the eventual organization of the United States Territory of Arizona. With the new officials on their way to the Chino Valley to start up the civilian government, it's time for us to jump back a little bit and explore the events that made that area a candidate for the new territorial capital. Just so you know, the plan is then to jump back again next week and cover the same period of time while exploring what, if anything, Cochise and the Apache were doing, and also watch as Kit Carson brings General Carleton's harsh treatment down on the heads of the Navajo. These three threats, political, economic, and military, are going to keep wrapping around each other tighter and tighter as we go on, so there might be more than one occasion where I'm going to need to cover the same time period from multiple different angles. So, where do we begin today then? Well, you will recall from our last episode that Carleton has suggested to Governor Goodwin and his party that they should head toward the center of the Arizona Territory because it was crawling with people who were mining for gold. So, starting with the discovery of gold seems as good a place as any to start. Back in episode 31, we discussed how Jacob Snively had found gold in the Gila River, which led to the boomtown of Gila City. Though by 1862, that city was now in its death throes, the idea that there could be more gold in them darn hills would not die so easily. Both early state historians Thomas Farish and James H. McClintock relate that there was a lot of diggings along the Colorado above Yuma, still called Arizona City at this point, starting in the late 1850s. Farish in particular relates people digging in the Eureka District just north of Yuma and at Castle Dome, about 50 miles north. These were not gold diggings, but rather Argentiferous Galena, 
which is just a fancy way of saying a type of silver-bearing rock. And this was not glamorous get-rich-quick mining, as according to Farish, the rock in the Eureka district contained only 20-30% to silver, and at Castle Dome, miners produced only 30-40 to ounces of silver for every ton of rock. But if you want to talk about gold discoveries in Arizona at this point, we have to jump up the Colorado to the boomtown of La Paz. La Paz was located alongside the river, roughly six miles north of where modern Interstate 10 crosses it on the way to Blythe in California. And during the winter of 1861-1862, none other than Pauline Weaver was in the area. If the name sounds familiar but you can't quite place it, let me give you a refresher. Because Weaver pops up a lot in random places across Arizona's history during this time. So many that state historian Marshall Trimble can only describe him as ubiquitous. Born in Tennessee in 1797, Weaver took to wandering early in life and is said to have worked for the Hudson's Bay Company up in Canada before drifting to the southwest. I first introduced Weaver way back in episode 17 as one of the prototypical mountain men type who were trapping and exploring across Arizona in the 1830s and 1840s. It's during this time that his given name of Pau was Latinized to Paulino by Spanish speakers, and then that name was, oddly enough, Anglicized to Pauline, which is how we know him today. We ran into him again in episode 21, where he was one of the guides hired to lead the Mormon battalion across the desert between Santa Fe and San Diego. Finally, we saw him just back in episode 39, where he was helping lead the California column toward Tucson, but threw up his hands in late spring 1862 when the commander refused to press the Confederates following the skirmish at Picacho Pass. This is where he is recorded to have shouted, If you fellers can't find the road from here to Tucson, you can go to hell. But several months before joining with the California column and then telling them exactly where they could go, Weaver was trapping along the Colorado and doing just a bit of mining on the side. On January 12th, Weaver found gold dust along a place known as the Arroyo de la Tenaja. Weaver filled a goose quill full of $2 to $3 worth of gold dust before heading down to Fort Yuma. He showed his findings to a man there named Jose Maria Redondo, the head of a Sonoran mining expedition that was doing placer mining around the Yuma area. Now, for the record, placer mining is mining that takes place in a stream or alluvial bed to find gold that's already been separated from other rock by the natural forces of water. Panning for gold is a type of placer mining. Redondo, of course, decided to check out Weaver's discovery. He prospected in the area and pulled out a two-ounce gold nugget, which was enough to convince him to set up shop. Soon, 400 Mexican miners and their families joined him, living in brush houses until adobe ones could be built. They also traded with the local Mojave Indians for food to sustain them as they mined along three washes or arroyos roughly three miles east of the Colorado. By October 1862, a small municipality had been formed, with all but one of the officials being Mexican. And this settlement became known as La Paz, because, according to Trimble, January 12th, when Weaver first found the gold dust, was the day of the Feast of Our Lady of Peace, or in Spanish, 
el día de la fiesta de Nuestra Señora de la Paz. But as we have seen, mineral strikes are incredibly hard things to keep to yourself. Eventually, 1,500 miners and others arrive to try to replicate Redondo's success, turning the area into your stereotypical boom town, for better and for worse. However, McClintock, who called Gila City a veritable hell on earth, says, quote, La Paz was for a while a prosperous town, well built for the times of adobe, the carousing ground of miners, an important landing place for river steamers, a distributing center for interior Arizona, and the seat of one of the first Arizona courts. End quote. The town was doing so well that when the territory of Arizona was organized, it was named the capital of the newly created Yuma County in 1864. We'll get into this battle a lot more when we turn our attention back to politics, but it was also briefly in the running to become the capital of the Arizona Territory. Before we move on from this happy little burg, there are a few odds and ends I want to touch on. Remember that McClintock just said that La Paz became an important landing port for steamers. We haven't had much to say about steamboats on the Colorado since episode 24, aptly named Crossing the Colorado. And it's here I need to actually offer a correction. I implied in that episode that the first steamer to ply the waters of the Colorado was the General Jessup, which started operating in 1853. I somehow missed that a year earlier, in 1852, another boat named the Uncle Sam actually earns that honorific. So my sincere apologies to the Uncle Sam. McClintock tells us that during this period, nearly all of the mining equipment and supplies came up the river and were dropped at ports such as Yuma, La Paz, and Fort Mojave. The ore mined at these ports was then shipped downriver to reach smelters, usually in San Francisco, but sometimes as far away as Swansea, Wales. Uh, you might recall that Wales is where Charles Poston sent the silver he was mining out of Tubac. And during this time, the best way to travel to Arizona, uh, assuming a starting point at San Francisco, was to take a boat to a port in Mexico like Guaymas and then a steamboat up the river to Yuma or beyond. It's from these riverside ports that goods began to flow along what few roads existed to settlements in the interior of the territory. However, even around an established place like Yuma, it was very possible to run aground on sandbars and other shallow areas, which is one reason why the unsteady and variable Colorado route would be eventually supplanted by railroads. Due to rapids and narrow canyons, the uppermost spot on the river that could be reached was said to be Hardyville, near modern Fort Mojave, where a gentleman by the name of, you guessed it, Hardy, operated a small post. However, McClintock also says that people were going further, even connecting with the Virgin River. Getting through there was helped by the use of snubbing posts, which were set with iron rings to help lighter boats gradually and gently pull themselves up or down the worst stretches. But let's go back a bit to that part about goods coming and going along the river. Because La Paz became as good a trading spot as any, and taking advantage of this were two Polish brothers who had immigrated first to open a mercantile store near the gold fields around San Francisco in 1849. 
Success there was fleeting, however, so it was decided to head further east to see if they couldn't make it at this new boom town along the Colorado. So, arriving with some much-needed goods, Michael Goldwater, later joined by his brother Joe, began a thriving business in La Paz. If your ears just perked up at that last name, you get two points for paying attention. Yes, this is that Goldwater family we are talking about. Michael, who went by Big Mike, and Joe would operate their mercantile out of La Paz and then Ehrenberg, and would eventually begin to freight goods to this new place being called Prescott. The family wound up establishing a chain of stores across Arizona in places such as Prescott, Parker, Tombstone, Bisbee, and Phoenix. One of Mike's sons, Morris, will become the mayor of Prescott, serving in the territorial and state legislatures, and will be a leader in the state's Democratic Party. And, of course, one of Mike's grandchildren will be none other than U.S. Senator and presidential candidate Barry M. Goldwater, who we will have a lot more to say about in the future. I'm lingering on La Paz because of another incident that happened in May 1863, which reminds us that, yes, we are still in the Civil War. As we mentioned a few times now, General Carleton had some pretty strong feelings about Confederate soldiers and sympathizers, who he characterized as no-good rebels who had to be put down by really any means necessary. And, as we discussed in episode 40, he went about this by pretty much rounding up everyone he thought fit the description and sending them to Fort Yuma in irons. Among the men rounded up was die-hard rebel sympathizer William Edwards, who went by the interesting nickname of Frog. No, seriously, he did. Seething about his treatment by Carlton, and probably feeling like he needed to wash his mouth out with soap after having sworn a loyalty oath to the Union in order to get out of jail, Edwards wanted revenge. The news arrived in Arizona of the victory of Confederate General Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville in Virginia. Feeling like things were going the Confederacy's way, Edwards decided this was his moment to strike, and so he formulated a plan. On May 20th, 1863, the steamer Cocopa had put into port at La Paz, carrying soldiers who were escorting military equipment. Three of the soldiers on board disembarked to buy supplies. Waiting for them was Frog Edwards. As the three privates were standing in front of a local store that evening, Edwards sprang into action, firing his revolver into the group. Private Ferdinand Ben was killed, while Private Trustin Wentworth would die from his wounds the next day as the steamer made its way back to Fort Yuma. The third soldier, Private Thomas Gaynor, survived but was seriously wounded. Immediately, a search party under the command of Lieutenant James A. Hale was raised to find Edwards, but to no avail. The Cocopa then had to speed back down to Fort Yuma, but a 40-man contingent out of Fort Mojave was organized to continue the pursuit. This group will actually be searching for an entire month, but were unable to find the dirty, rotten rebel who had gunned down three of their own. However, they needn't have worried, because it turned out Edwards had already gotten his comeuppance. A group of soldiers eventually found his body out in the desert. It seems, in his zeal to avoid capture, he had died of exposure under the harsh Arizona sun. This incident is a little interesting drama all by itself, 
but it is also an ignominious footnote in history for another reason. Back in episode 39, we talked about a small skirmish between Union and Confederate scouting forces just east of Fort Yuma, and I mentioned how many considered this the westernmost shots fired of the Civil War. At the time, I also mentioned that this was disputed because of an incident in La Paz in 1863. And, well, this is that incident. So Edward's revenge might actually be as far west as the Civil War ever got. It wasn't a battle, it wasn't even a skirmish, but shots were fired in anger. Like I said, an ignominious little footnote in history. While we are here, I should just wrap up the story of La Paz. Because at the same time it was becoming the county seat, the gold had also run out after miners had taken an estimated $8 million worth out of the earth. The typical boom and bust cycle for a mining town was only delayed due to the presence of 17 merchants in the area, which still made La Paz an important stop on the Colorado River. The town dwindled to a population of 350, but was able to carry on for another two years. But then the Colorado, ah, she is a fickle mistress, suddenly shifted course in 1868, leaving the town landlocked. Soon the county seat moved down to Yuma, and most of the local inhabitants moved to a new site to the southeast, now being called Ehrenberg. As important as La Paz is, it wasn't the only place where gold was being discovered. And for that story, we have to jump 130 miles or so to the northeast, which hopefully will bring us back around to where we ended last week. To get there, we have to bring back someone I introduced two weeks ago, Joseph Rutherford Walker. If you don't recall the name, that's fine. He was only a side character when I introduced him. But Walker was the leader of the mining party at Pinos Altos in New Mexico and was part of the group that eventually took Mangas Colorados into custody, the custody that proved to be the chief's final end. Like I said, Walker was only a side character in that story, but now let's move him center stage. Walker was originally from Tennessee and had made his way out west by the early 1830s. In the 1840s, like many of his contemporaries, he was a mountain man and guide. He had been mining in New Mexico and Arizona for some time, including along the Little Colorado River in 1861. He had gathered a group to explore mining options, which is why he had been at Pinos Altos near Mesilla at the time of Mangas Colorado's capture. Deciding that he needed to travel off the beaten path a little bit in order to really strike it big, Walker's party headed toward the interior of the Arizona Territory. Now, early state historians Thomas Farish and James H. McClintock say the group headed to the Pima villages along the Gila River, where they were told of precious minerals to the north. From there, they found their way to the Hasayampa River and followed their way up towards its headwaters. And, according to McClintock at least, it was in June 1863 that Walker and his party found themselves in the area of modern Prescott. Here, they did strike it big. Gold was discovered on the north bank of the Hasayampa, about five miles south of Prescott, with other miners finding additional strikes along Granite, Turkey, Lynx, Weaver, and Big Bug Creeks. 
Of course, the only downside to finding gold in the middle of nowhere is you suddenly find yourself lacking for supplies. So Walker and those with him would make trips down to the Pima villages to barter for food, while also leaving letters with friendly Amerindians to let family, friends, and, importantly moving forward, the military know what they had found. Hot on Walker's heels, or maybe before or simultaneously, depending on which source you are reading, was once again the ubiquitous Pauline Weaver, who I've decided has gotten short shrift when it comes to most state histories because he really does show up pretty much everywhere. After his discovery at La Paz, Weaver had decided to head toward the interior of Arizona to see if he couldn't find somewhere else that also contained shiny metals. In long story short, he did. Long story long, he had been hired by a party of miners from Nevada and California to head up the Hacienda. North of modern Wickenburg, around the area of Yarnell today, the group was at the top of a small hill or knoll in what is today known as the Weaver Mountains. And surprisingly, at the top of that knoll, they found the richest placer gold strike in the state. According to A.H. Peoples, one of the miners who had hired Weaver, quote, To show how rich that ground was, I remember one day that only three of us were at work. By just scratching around in the gravel with our butcher knives, we obtained over $1,800 worth of nuggets before evening. End quote. Peoples made sure to note that not every day was that good. But yeah, they had found a prime spot. Of course, they named the site of their discovery Rich Hill. You might also see it listed sometimes as Antelope Hill, because the party had shot and made jerky of some antelope around that location before going looking for gold. Along for this expedition was a German man, well, Prussian if you want to get technical, named Henry Wickenburg. Wickenburg was born in 1819, but immigrated to the U.S. in 1847 after experiencing the heavy hand of government involving coal mining rights. Like many, he headed to the gold fields of California, but also, like many, could not find his fortune there and started to drift back east. And that's when he joined with Peoples, Weaver, and the others. After the discovery at Rich Hill, Wickenburg began to explore, following the advice of a local rancher named King Woolsey, who will pop up again in the future, to explore the Harquahala Mountains on the west side of the Hacienda. There, in November 1863, he found not only the richest gold strike in Arizona history, but in the entire western U.S. Placer gold. Remember, that's the kind already separated from rock due to the natural processes involving water, was so plentiful that state historian Marshall Trimble says it could be mined with the toe of a boot, or a knife if you really felt industrious. And McClintock relates that miners became rich just by gathering up pockets or lunch cans full of loose quartz rock, which was sometimes more than 50% gold. But the mine wasn't just placer gold. It had plenty of load gold, or gold still attached to the ore, as well. To get at the load gold, however, the ore had to be hauled 11 miles to the Hacienda, where a series of arastras, or mule power ore crushers, were in use. McClintock mentions that eventually 40 of these things were running before they were replaced by mills. 
And if you are wondering what an arrastra looks like, there's a picture up with this episode at the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com. The one in the picture is a more primitive version that can be found on display in Tubac, but the principle is the same. A mule moves the wheel around, and a large hanging rock crushes everything inside the circle. According to Trimble, the story is that when Wickenburg discovered his mine, he looked up and saw a vulture circling overhead. Instead of being a little creeped out by this, like I would have been, Wickenburg named his find the Vulture Mine. Within a year of the discovery, a community had been established on the Hasiampa near the Vulture Mine. Though it went by a couple names early on, including Vulture and the Pumpkin Patch, seriously, when a post office was established, it was eventually called Wickenburg. McClintock says that calling the community Wickenburg actually came from John N. Goodwin, Arizona's first territorial governor. Here again we find also the entrepreneurial Mike Goldwater, who set up a mercantile in Wickenburg to capitalize on this gold rush. McClintock says Goldwater helped finance one of the mills built in 1865, and actually ran it for a month in order to recoup his expenses. Trimble relays a possibly related story from Barry Goldwater that once Big Mike even went to Wickenburg and temporarily took over the mining operation until some unpaid debts were satisfied. Another interesting side note is that in coming years, everyone's favorite ex-Confederate soldier, Jack Swilling, will look at farming in the Salt River Valley just to help provide food for this growing mining community. Though, like I said, this was one of the best gold strikes in the western U.S., there is a bit of a sad coda to this story. Wickenburg himself was a miner, not a business operator. Early on, he let people mine as they pleased, asking for $15 for every ton of rock they hauled out. In 1866, he would sell his shares to eastern financiers for something along the lines of $50,000, though McClintock claims it was 100000 these financiers would form the Vulture Mining Company and run it for great profit. However, and again there is some disagreement in the sources out there, Wickenburg had gotten a lump sum, but had not arranged for a continual stake in the mine's profits. Trimble goes so far as to say he had been swindled, though McClintock implies it was more Wickenburg's lack of foresight. Eventually, the prospector, now penniless and living in a small hovel along the Hasayampa, would take his own life in 1905. You may have noticed that most of these placer gold strikes in central Arizona are happening alongside, near, or on tributaries of the Hasayampa River. This became so ingrained in the popular imagination that the miners who'd flocked to locations such as Rich Hill, Prescott, and Wickenburg became known as Hasayampers. I know it sounds silly, but seriously, Farish gives a long extract from a primary source text that is titled, How I Became a Hasayamper. But I want to circle back now to something I mentioned earlier. As I said, Walker and his party, as they discovered placer gold near Prescott, had been leaving letters with friendly Odom natives to send to family, friends, and... Do you remember the third one? That's right, the military. General Carlton, all the way over in New Mexico, was very interested in the reports of gold strikes inside his jurisdiction. 
State historian Thomas Sheridan relates that Walker and his party had gone to the Chino Valley with Carlton's direct blessing, though McClintock takes it a step further, saying the two men were in cahoots, so to speak, and Walker was to send word immediately should he find anything. Either way, as we saw, Walker did find something, and quite a bit of something at that. Additionally, as more American settlers came into the area, tensions with the native tribes naturally began to rise, which led to calls for a military presence. And that's why, as I mentioned last week, in October 1863, Carleton ordered that a military fort be established in the area. And in February 1864, Major E.B. Willis, a detachment of California volunteers, 75 miners, and Governor Goodwin scouted out a permanent site for this fort. They settled on land along Granite Creek, with Willis writing, quote, We propose to afford them all facilities possible in prospecting the country over which we pass, and at the same time, if possible, strike a blow at the Indians. End quote. Meanwhile, Governor Goodwin and the miners continued another mile and a half upstream, where they would set up a new community, soon to be dubbed Prescott. But that's a story for another time. For us, we will be back next week and once again rewind the clock to the beginning of 1863 to follow up with Carlton's desire to stamp out all Amerindian resistance. To that end, he'll once again turn to Kit Carson, but this time dispatching him into Arizona to deal with the Navajo. That campaign will result in what is still known today as the Long Walk. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.